Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Having the usual technical difficulties of the amateur, semi, semi-pro, semi-pro podcaster here, setting up my cameras and such. I, I'm trying to get it so I can talk to you and look into the mic at the same time, but I always have the same problem as my camera's a little bit above the screen where I see your face and I, I'm drawn to your face, Bruce. I look at your face, so then I'm not looking at the camera. But anyway, trying to solve that a wee little bit. I think I might have done that a bit. I shouldn't probably adjust my thing too much. Okay, I'm Bruce, having so- a technical issue of my own. Oh, yeah. What's that, that I got a little buzzing noise in the background. The fan on my computer is... Uh, in the process of dying, the replacement part has been ordered but not arrived. So I've moved the mic as far away from the computer on the other side as possible. But I do apologize for the intermittent buzzing that uh, is unfortunately sure to happen here. Well, Hopefully it'll be fixed by next cast. It's summertime. We'll just pretend someone's in, some industrious person's cutting your lawn out there and that happens. Mm-hmm. You get a little buzz in the background. It's a summertime noise. Bruce, we are going, we've started our prospect series, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about Nail Yakupov and uh, where he ranks among, ranks all time amongst first overall draft picks. We're going to talk about the Buffalo Sabres, the woes of the Buffalo Sabres, who as recently as last year were compared to the Edmonton Oilers, and someone said, a CBC sports columnist said, the Oilers should be jealous, or maybe the Oilers are jealous uh, of the Buffalo Sabres rebuild. And he said that at probably the least opportune moment that he could have picked, just before the Sabres were to hit the garbage can and the Oilers were to improve their fortunes. So we'll talk about all those things, but we'll start today, Bruce, just with a quick talk about the woes of the University of Alberta Golden Bears. They're not going to be playing hockey or a bunch of other sports, any yeah. almost any significant sport next year, and um, you know my my take on this, Bruce, is is completely expected in this age of COVID. I don't think we'd be seeing this at any other time, any other circumstances, even with budget cuts at the university. Honestly, this is to me, this is all related to COVID. I, I I'd be surprised if um, there was teams to play. If the Golden Bears said we were we want to play. I don't think there'd be teams for you to play, honestly, this coming year because of COVID. It's going to be a huge challenge for minor sports leagues to run this coming winter. It's going to be a huge challenge for schools to run. Everyone is going to be supremely challenged. So to me, this is a story about, unfortunately, COVID shutting things down. And even though I don't think there's much risk, real risk to the student athletes, they're they're in completely good health. They're in an uh, age cohort, which is shown um, not to have major adverse impacts from this particular bug. Uh, nonetheless, uh, there's so many, many other people and so much associated with COVID that I think that they're, they're just thinking, this is not going to fly. And that's that's how I see it. What about you? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a perfect storm for sure. But COVID is the leading element that's uh, going to affect a lot of uh uh, a lot of, as you say, lower-level sports, and there's a few uh, sports leagues that we've come to know and love that uh, 
are going to be under the gun, the Canadian Football League, I think the Western Hockey League. I mean, we all bets are off as far as I'm concerned there. And uh, Canadian University Sports, it's always run on a shoestring. And there are budgetary concerns. There's a lot of sort of back and forth, uh, you know, sort of political uh, discussions about, uh, about uh, budget cuts and the team's relationship with the Edmonton Oilers, or sorry, the university's relationship with the Edmonton Oilers and so on that add up to the perfect storm. Uh, I don't particularly want to talk about the political side of things because I don't know well enough what's going on. I'm no, by no means an insider into any of those. Uh, but I will speak to my sadness as to the shutdown of the uh, U of A program, Golden Bears, which I personally have been following since 1974-75 when the Golden Bears team of Ross Barrow, Spenny and the Jets uh, era Golden Bears uh, won the national championship uh, in, a, in a thrilling uh, series of series where they actually hosted a bunch of teams from uh, other provinces in the national playoffs and uh, they beat uh, Jim Corsi, the famous Jim Corsi, who has a famous hockey statistic named after him. Well, he's a real person that used to be a goalie and a hell of a good one with uh, Concordia University Stingers back in the day. And also Tom Watt and the University of Toronto Blues were vanquished in the finals that year. But there's just such a, a long and glorious history. I mean, the, they've been playing hockey, uh, Golden Bears program, since 1907. They've competed 108 different seasons. They've had teams on the ice. There was, like, I think, a couple of stoppages for, you know, world wars and minor details like that. But the team has been on the ice for 108 seasons. They won 55 uh, conference championships, Canada West conference champions. Like, it's a glorious program with a huge, long history of success. And they play great hockey. Uh, I make a point of going down to the... Uh, uh, Claire Drake Arena, as it's now known, formerly Varsity Arena, at least once every season just to enjoy the the atmosphere and kind of the old school kind of game that uh, that's played there. Um, and the arena, is a, it's a pure burn, right? It's 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 like Renfrew Park on steroids. You sit on a hard bench, and but you're right on top of the action, also like Renfrew Park, and you, you know you're right right in there, and you know for the price that was charged. The quality of hockey, it was a bargain. You always saw a, a good, hard game. And uh, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the team has, uh, you know, really made its mark in this community and across uh, across Canada and, of course, contributed many, many fine citizens, uh, not least of which, of course, Claire Drake himself and his, uh, and his protege and eventual successor, Billy Moore's, that ran the program. These are, are two men that had, uh, uh, you know, cross pollination with the Oilers, uh, as did Ian Herbers, another uh, another coach from uh, uh, Golden Bears, and of course a number of their players, uh, uh, most notably Dr. Randy Gregg, who still runs a sports medicine clinic in this town, and who uh, uh, has started up a number of uh, of um, initiatives like uh, Fun Team Alberta and uh, now in the amateur baseball scene. And it, it's just been, a you know, sort of the gift that keeps on giving, even as it's always been kind of underappreciated. Like, I always go there and I wonder, why isn't there more people coming to these games? They're good, the action's good. But uh, 
you know, sort of run on a shoestring, but uh, enjoyable. And for now, it's gone. Hopefully, it's just 2021. As they've announced, they've already canceled the entire season in, in June. Like, it's amazing. And uh, originally, they canceled with the fall sports. And I thought, well, maybe hockey will just pick up in January. It'll you know, have a late start like so many sports leagues are going to have. But nope, it's off the table. Basketball gone, volleyball gone, men's and women's in all cases. And as you say, who knows how many other um, other programs will get going. But I would think that the, uh, uh, the pullback of the Golden Bears from Canada West probably is the death knell for this conference play this year. It's hard to imagine the, the uh, conference uh, going on ahead with uh, the remaining schools and, you know, because many of them are facing same or similar issues uh, on the budgetary and the health front. So it's just, it's a sad day. Yeah. My only question is like, as an enduring question is why is it underappreciated given the level of play? What could they have done? What could they do to, um, to get more fan interest? You know, when we write about, let's, let's be honest, when we write posts about the, U of A mm-hmm. Golden Bears. Almost no one reads them. Yeah, and yeah, I, that, that's that's the honest to God truth. So there's just no little interest in this program um, from the average sports fan. And, and mm-hmm. uh, but that you could say that about heck, it's almost true of every other sport except for the Oilers and Edmonton Bruce. Yeah. So we're just a one sport city in terms of uh, one fan one yeah one team um, city in terms of fan interest. And I so I don't have the answers for the U of A Golden Bears oh, in that regard, right. but. Um, First, let's talk I, about. The I Buffalo. know when ahead, when sorry. I joined the I, when I joined the cult of hockey, I thought, well, it's hockey. It's not the cult of Oilers, so I'm going to write about other levels of hockey. Some I did some sort of minor hockey, uh, a lot of Oil Kings coverage. Uh, one or two times a year, I'd write about the Golden Bears, and as you say, the readership just went down. Like I, I remember doing a great interview with uh, Ted Poplowski one time, and I thought this is terrific stuff, but didn't seem to be very interesting to very many people and it's uh, it, it is very much a niche market but it's still a market and it's tough for the students I particularly feel bad for the student athletes who've committed to coming to the school and playing hockey and following you know their hockey dream who are basically shut out now oh yeah it's that's really that is really tough for those for those people they just love hockey they want to play hockey and they want to compete Yep. Very frustrating for them. All right, uh, Bruce, let's talk about the the latest news, which is the Buffalo Sabres firing GM Jason Botterell. And I'm careful and, about and, uh, and everybody, everybody else. else. <laughs> it just seems like a cluster frack uh, in Buffalo, Bruce, cluster frack. And you know what? You can say, well, it's been a cluster frack in in. Edmonton for a long time too. Yep. I think that cool. would be a fair, fair, fair comment. But um, the orders seem to have righted the ship by hiring Ken Holland and Dave Tippett. Doesn't seem like, of course, they're winning. Like they had a winning season. And in Shirelli's first season, we all had these same feelings. Like finally competent NHL, experienced NHL yeah. leadership, blah blah blah, and everything seems good. But it does actually, yeah, it does actually. <laughs> seem good right now in Edmonton with this with this competent new leadership. There's no questions. There's no one's, you know, instability orders franchise, franchise of woe, decade of darkness. All of this seems safely 
safely in the past, partly because of some of the drafting and development that happened under Peter Shirelli. Like uh, some good things got going. There were some bad individual decisions, especially at the pro level in terms of trades. But in terms of, it seems like in terms of developing Bakersfield, developing uh, the drafting system, um, they did a per, they did at least a B plus, B to B plus job, maybe even A minus job under Shirelli getting this getting this all going but in in buffalo bruce so i looked into this a little bit some of the moves they made and he he made i think two significant moves botterell did in his time he was only there three years and he but he made two significant moves that were absolutely horrendous uh in terms of the future of the franchise first of all he trades ryan o'reilly uh And he gets Patrick Berland, who plays 23 games and has four points and then is off the team and then is in Sweden. He gets uh, Vladimir Sabatka, who played 16 games this year. I guess he was hurt and got three or four points. So like a non-entity. And he got a um, Cage Thompson, former first pick, who's in the HL and may become a good NHL player. Maybe. He seemed to think he got injured too, based on it. I think he only played like... 15, 25, 20, 25 games this year. And then he got a first pick from St. Louis. And that first pick turned out to be 31st overall because St. Louis. Because <laughs> <laughs> Ryan O'Reilly won the Con Smythe and St. Louis Blues won the Stanley Cup. Yeah. Talk about so getting the smack in the face twice. So that was his, uh, <laughs> that was his um, Adam Lark. Jordan, Eberly, Ryan Strom trade all rolled into one big... At least Adam Larson is a really good hockey player for the Edmonton Oilers. Like, at least you can point to something with the Oilers in the Taylor Hall trade and say, hey, the Oilers got a really good player. Uh, at least the way he's playing now. And if Adam Larson comes up big in this, these playoffs, Bruce, you know, that, that trade uh, is always going to be controversial, but you can yep. say the Oilers got a win out of it. Then, then... And this well, is, you can this, always this, say they got 60 cents on the dollar. I mean, how much yeah. did Buffalo get for Ryan O'Reilly? 10 cents? I mean, really? <laughs> yeah. I don't, it's just, it's just such a horrible trade. Um, and I know O'Reilly wanted out and, you know, it wasn't working out there and his value was a little lower for all those reasons. But man, what a terrible terrible hockey trade and then he signs and this is the this is his milan lucic moment which and these the o'reilly trade is bad but this contract that he gave to uh uh, skinner jeff skinner oh bruce nine million dollars a year for seven seven years now he's he is 28 he was 28 in the first year of his deal No, but twenty-eight is when you when you start to historically, on average, declines in players' output, offensive output. You know, and if they're a really good player, they can still be a good player through their thirties. But Jeff and Jeff Skinner was a good player uh, through his twenties. He was a consistent, probably twenty-five to thirty goal scorer. He was a bit streaky up and down when you look at his numbers, but he only I think he got fourteen goals in I think fifty-nine games this year, Bruce. For nine million dollars, imagine if Leon Drysaddle. This would be the equivalent of Leon Drysaddle getting, you know, playing this year and getting, you know, twenty something points and twelve goals, thirteen, fourteen mm-hmm. goals. I mean, we would just be shredding 
Peter Shirelli for site giving him that long-term yeah. contract. But that was different. Leon Dreisaitl was heading into the absolute meaty peak of his NHL career when he signed that deal, right? Mm-hmm. There was a, there should be an expectation. Maybe you're paying too much, but man, you are, you are making a decent bet on a player heading in, into his prime. Skinner, is he going to, like he, okay, he could bounce back, Bruce, but he could not bounce back too. Yeah. Like some players just fall off the cliff at age 28, 29, 30. They just, Danny Heatley, you know, what happened to him after age 30? I'll have to check. Oh. He's a, he is a four-time 30-goal scorer, Jeff Skinner. Yeah. But, I mean, 30 goals, $9 million. Man, I mean, that is huge money. And you, you've got to get great production uh, for that. He's also a four-time player in the, at minus 20 or worse, which, I mean, some of that obviously goes to team. Uh, but this is not a guy with a history of outscoring, unlike Ryan O'Reilly. Uh, and it's uh, it, it, it's looking at this early, it was six years to go on the contract, it's looking like a horrendous mistake. Uh, he certainly delivered nowhere near uh, that level of value this year with just 14 goals and nine assists, you know, 59 games, nine assists. What kind of an offensive catalyst is that? So, yeah, huge, huge blunder. So Danny Heatley had his last really good year when he was 28 years old. Mm-hmm. Point a game player when he was 28. And oh, and then after that, he had two kind of mediocre years. And then he just fell <clears> off a cliff. Absolutely felt like he was just. So I, he, Heatley comes to mind because he's kind of a better version of Skinner, more productive version of Skinner. But, you know, Skinner could, he, he could rebound. And maybe this is going to. Mm-hmm. Maybe this won't work out so badly, but it just, at the time the contract was signed, it seemed like a massive, massive overpay. You know, like a, a player, I don't know, what would have what would have made sense for him? You know, a shorter term deal at $7 million a year. Um, he was coming off, I think, a 40-goal season, like his best season goal scoring, but yeah, he was yeah. also playing with Jack Eichel and... Yeah, the platform season. I do I have to admit I'm a I'm a fan of Jeff Skinner, the player. I really enjoy watching him because Smart. he is yeah, and he is the uh uh the very rare case of a of a player of a, of an athlete who was a very advanced level figure skater and he won um he won medals at the national level coming up as a figure skater. And I just find it fun to watch him apply some of the figure skating moves to the context of hockey. As a fan of both sports, you know, there's not really a whole lot of overlap between uh, between figure skating and hockey. But uh, some of the little spin moves and so on that he had, like, he's super, super elusive. And he's got all kinds of nifty dangles just on his skates, you know, that uh, allows him to elude uh, defenders. But uh, nine million? I'm glad Oilers aren't paying that. Let's put it that way. So in December 2018, Tim Warnsby of CBC wrote a little column where he should, he he wrote, there should be a little envy in Edmonton these days with the early season success of the Buffalo Sabres. At that point, Buffalo had 17 wins. I think maybe the Oilers had 10 or 11. Anyway, so he was, Warnsby was saying that their re- rebuild was, looked like it was going better. And since that time, in 126 games, the Oilers have 134 points. 
And Buffalo in 122 games have 106 points, which in the NHL is a really abysmal total. Um, so yeah, that was not good timing for uh, Warnsby to point that out. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I, you always have to be careful because again, after the 2017 season at Edmonton, I, I was predicting certainly that the Oilers had righted the ship and were on the right path. And um, you know, the Andre Sekera injury, I think, is the key factor to me in changing everything the owners the owners didn't have the defensive depth but this time i'm a bit more confident bruce in my hopes for the team there's one huge question mark two two huge question marks in net (laughs) but other than that like right now this oilers team they look pretty uh for the next three four years bruce Mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine that they're not going to be uh in the playoffs and starting to compete for the Stanley Cup when you have Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, and the rest of them. So it looked kind of bleak maybe a year ago, but not anymore. Well, I, for one, I'm not going to gloat at uh, problems in Buffalo. I have all kinds of sympathy for Buffalo Sabres fans because they're Edmonton East and we're Buffalo West, you know, year <laughs> after year of, 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 out of the playoffs, in a high lottery position. I mean, more than once, the Oilers have battled the the Sabers for um, uh, for for a high spot in the draft. I mean, you'll remember the uh, 2014. The Sabers drafted second, took Sam Reinhart. The Oilers went third and got Leon Draisaitl. Thank you, Buffalo. And then, in two, and then in 2015, the Oilers won the lottery after Buffalo was clearly the worst team in the league all year. And the Oilers got McDavid, and Buffalo got a pretty nice consolation prize in Jack Eichel. And they won another lottery with Rasmus Dahlin. And if you ask the same questions about Buffalo that you do, how can you have all these high picks and still be such a crummy team? And it's just baffling. And, I mean, obviously management has uh, uh, has some to do with it. And... uh, they anyway the Pagulas they didn't just take out the manager yesterday it was a it was a regular red wedding going on there in Buffalo they axed the both assistant GMs they axed the director of scouting the assistant director of scouting all the scouts they axed the minor league coach and the assistant coaches there was like probably fifteen people I don't know quite how many scouts they had but let's say twelve to fifteen uh, hockey. Uh, uh, Employees all got axed with a single massive stroke uh, 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 yesterday. I heard on the radio some of the calls to the to uh, to the fired employees lasted no more than twenty seconds. Phone, hi, you're gone. Bye. You know, <laughs> there's, there's no good way to fire someone. Uh, Bruce, uh, here's what I the the other thing that happened in Buffalo is so after they drafted Eichel, their next two picks were Alexander Nylander and Casey Middlestat. So, I mean, you needed one of those guys, just yeah. like the Oilers when they drafted Puliyarvi and Yamamoto. You mm-hmm. you needed you had to have one of those guys step up into a top six role right. and fairly fast. And it's with a with young wingers, why not? Because young wingers can do that. It's not that tough a position defensively. All you got to do is show that offensive ability that you've shown all your life at it's one higher level really hard to do but you know the odds are one out of two of those high draft picks both i think taken maybe in the top 10 i'm not sure what nylander was yeah i think that both in the top 10 and middlestad and nylander both have yet to make their mark there's real solid there's big questions around middlestad nylander actually had a fairly decent year uh even strength scoring wise in chicago, in chicago. We'll see. 
We'll see him in the playoffs. Maybe he's going to be a player. So, uh, but Matt, but doesn't help Buffalo. All they got Henrik Yokiharu, and everyone thought that was a steal for the Sabres. We'll see. Um, not everyone, but this I noticed the stats guys really love that one. So we'll see. I, I, I'm just cheering for Ralph Kruger. I, again, I, I don't have any. Amazing. I don't have. He, he's his head is still on his shoulders after all that. Well, Jack Eichel likes him. Didn't like anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be, come on, that seems to be the dynamic there. They got rid of everyone that Jack Eichel didn't like. Even I guess he didn't like the scouts, too. That's not fair to Jack well, Eichel. Connor McDavid cleared his throat here last year, and uh, and the action from the ownership level was en- ensued soon thereafter. So yeah. we're at that place in, in uh, sports now where the superstar athlete and the huge contract and investment that goes with it actually holds sway over the, the, the senior executives and coaches on the team. If the superstar isn't happy, the owner's not happy. And in, a, in another version, in another timeline, Bruce, Frank Mahovlich got punch Imlac fired. All right. Um, mandatory 1960s hockey reference that didn't happen from, a, from, an, like from an alternate timeline. Imlac traded Frank Mahovlich before he got fired, but it was certainly part of the part of the underlying unhappiness with Imlock eventually. Yeah, he did. And that's why I'm saying it would be another timeline mm-hmm. that, uh, where, uh, anyway, um, Neil Yakupov, Bruce, do mm-hmm. you think he is the worst first overall pick in NHL history? And when I say this, people, people pointed out all of these terrible first round draft picks, first overall picks from the 1960s. And yeah. my rejoinder to that is like, we're not, we're talking about a different draft then. It was only it it was only in 1969, finally, that all of the best players uh, were in the draft where where someone wasn't out because he had signed a contract previously like Bobby Orr had with with the Bruins and was tied up that way. So in 1969, we start the modern draft. So would you say, Bruce, would would, uh, Dale Yakupov be the most disappointing first overall pick in NHL history. Yeah, I read, I read your post, of course, and then you made a pretty compelling case. And there's a, you know, there's a short list of other guys that have to be considered who, uh, who uh, didn't get much done, but, you know, even guys like Patrick Stefan and Alexander Daig, to name uh, two of them, you know, had a couple of seasons where they were, you know, pretty decent players. Yakupov topped out at, 33 points, I think it was. He had 17 goals in the lockout-shortened uh, rookie season as a teenager, and you think, man, this is a as a future sniper for years. And he never got back to that level. It's, it's, that remains his career high in six NHL seasons. And uh, for a guy who was touted first and foremost as a goal scorer, uh, you know, he just didn't produce. And part of it was bad timing, bad luck, wrong team um but he really struggled to click uh really with anyone in edmonton and you could see i mean he was a guy there's some common with him and yes of course wasn't a number one overall pick but guys that came in with with real sort of pizzazz and 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 confidence and you could see it eroding away from both those guys i mean yakupov by the time he was uh uh in his final season here he couldn't make a one-timer like he kept whiffing on on shots and that was supposedly his his super strength so yeah yeah that's when, true when you talk about disappointing 
Yeah, I mean, there have been disappointing first overall picks. And you, you also mentioned a, a mandatory 1970s sports reference, Greg Jolly, famously of the Washington Capitals. He got drafted and he went right into Washington Capitals expansion team that remains the worst team in NHL history. And that team, uh, and he got caved, minus 69 in 44 games. How's that? So, I mean... Anyway, but he had a few decent seasons, and it's a question of, well, devalue the defenseman over the forward. And, I mean, that's the short list, I think, as it comes down to, uh, yeah, really, you know, that, yeah. that that handful of players. And I would put, um, I think I would rank Stefan and Daigle ahead of Yakupov, and, and Jolly's in a, just a different category. Jolly, I wonder, Bruce, if you would put Denny Potvin on that Capitals team, how he would have done. Because that was that team was, when you look at the team, there was hardly any, even close to NHL players on that entire team. And none of them coming. Like, they didn't add any NHL players. Potvin had a way better supporting cast than uh, Greg Jolly did. So, I, I for that reason, I thought, you know, it's a coin flip between Jolly and Yakupov in terms of lack of NHL production. You, can, you could say uh, Dag, some people said, well, Dag is more disappointing because he had higher expectations than Yakupov. More was expected of him because he looked like a better player. Uh, but Dake had, a, I think, a significantly better NHL career than Yakupov. Ste- Patrick Stefan had a very weak NHL career as well. You could you could make an argument for him. You know, mm-hmm. the, the funny thing is when you go down this list, so there's, I think it's like, there's, so, so there's only, we're only looking at 41 players here. And when, right. you, when, you, when you can get a top 10, okay. but by the end of the top 10, you're, like the players after the top 10 are like Rajan Uhl, Dale McCourt, Nico Heeshear, Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Right away, you get into very, very good players on the list. Like, like mm-hmm. even though they're not at the top, like the, you know, the very top first overall picks, right away you get into like Chris Phillips, Joe Murphy, Mel Bridgman, Billy Harris, like all guys who had really strong NHL careers. Right. So the, the top 10, um, they're, they're just guys that, you know, Yakupov, Jolly, Stefan, Brian Lott, and Doug Wickenheiser, Dag. And then you get into some guys who were injured, D. Pietro, right. Brian Berard, and Gord Kluzak. And Gord Kluzak, I think, oh, is man. one of the he real tragedies of NHL history. I think he could have been as good as Larry Robinson, potentially. He, like He, he was, was a stud. I remember how great he was in the 1988 Stanley Cup Finals. Yeah, and, what a great and, hockey player. Yeah, and then, he, and then he hurt his knee, uh, I think not for the first time, but he had a catastrophic knee injury that really... Really uh, did him in. To me, I mean, the worst first overall pick, if, if you think of it as in terms of a package of everything that went around it, yeah, uh, I'm going to vote for Rick DiPietro for that, for the reason that uh, Islanders had the first overall pick and owner, which I believe was Charles Wang at the time, um, decided he wanted to make a splash by picking the first goalie um, First overall ever. They liked Di Pietro, and he was a flashy puck handler and all that. So to set the table for uh, the, to open the roster spot, they traded on draft morning Roberto Luongo and Ali Jokinen to Florida for Mark Parrish and Oleg Kavasha, and then <laughs> they picked Rick Di Pietro. <laughs> So it was really the trade that was truly horrendous. But if you consider the trade as part of the of that first overall pick, then that clearly, that was Mike Milbury at his very, very worst. Just Here's disastrous one. move. 
and Charles Wang at his worst. When the owner gets involved, there's trouble. And and there's certainly a case to be made that the owner got involved in the Yakupov selection as well. We've heard quite a bit about that. Yeah, okay, Here, here's here's disappointing and kind of a different level. I, you might go with the Doug Wickenheiser pick as most disappointing of all time. Because when Sam Pollock pulled off the trade with Colorado, I believe, he gave, it was, I, th- I think he made the trade three or four years in advance because Sam Pollock was looking down the line and he's thinking, okay, who's a terrible team that might finish last in 1980 when Wayne Gretzky comes up in the draft? <laughs> and if you're disappointed, like just think if you were Sam Pollock, and you're watching this all unfold, you might have had Wayne Gretzky with that draft pick because, they, in fact, Colorado did finish worst in the league that year. But who did you get? You didn't get Wayne Gretzky. You got a what looked like a pretty good player, at the, like a great player at the time, Doug Wickenheiser, big, fast, strong, skilled. He never panned out uh, very well. But in terms of, like, theoretical disappointment, like, if Sam Pollock had remained on the job and had been there through the 90s or the 80s, he might be thinking, oh, God. Cruel fate deprived yeah. me of yeah. Well, that, and that one, I mean, that that was a perfect storm. Also, Montreal. I mean, Irving Grundman, the replacement for uh, Sam Pollock. Yeah, uh, there was a lot of heat in Montreal. Uh, a lot of heat and light around a guy named Denny Savard, who of course Draft played Denny, for the Montreal yeah. Junior Canadiens, and he went third overall in that pick. They picked. Wickenheiser and Savard went third overall. Well, wouldn't you know it, the Montreal season started on a Saturday night, hockey night in Canada against Chicago. And Wickenheiser, for reasons still unclear, started in the press box, watching down from on high, the first overall draft pick. And Denny Savard is out there playing for Chicago. And, of course, he scores his first career goal. And he sets up one. And the crowd gives Savard, the visiting player, a standing ovation First, his first career goal, and the Hawks beat the Habs. And right away, they you know that any sort of uh, lingering resentment that they they picked the Western Canadian boy over the local fellow uh, just amped up in volume. You know how these things, uh, you know, you you get a little bit of negative feedback into what's already a negative feedback loop, and it just goes crazy. And uh, and I don't think the Montreal fans ever warmed to Doug Wickenheiser. Oh, well, Denny Savard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we, we mourn at Edmonton, like, not taking Zach Parise and taking uh, Pouliot, Mark, uh, Mark Antoine Pouliot? Is that yes. Yeah. And uh, just thinking Montreal through the 80s, the recriminations and the, the anger that must have been felt, because Denny Savard became, you know, the probably the maybe the second best attacking forward of that early 80s era after Wayne Gretzky, I mean, he was a fantastic attacking hockey player. Bruce, I want to point out one other guy on the list was Jack Hughes. He's number ten, mm-hmm. yeah. and I felt a little bad putting him there because he's a rookie. But that was a that that was a super inauspicious rookie year for Mister Hughes, and um, he could easily bounce back. I hope he does. He seems like a fine hockey player with all the skills. But you know, so other first overall picks have had first years that bad like joe thornton uh had a year similar to that and there's been other guys so we'll see joe Joe thornton had seven points as a rookie i believe yeah so uh we'll see hughes could easily he's just there Mm -hmm. because all all the other guys are actually really good hockey players and there was no one else to put at number 10 uh, quite honestly but he's he's got to show it in the in coming years and i suspect that he will 
He's, no, he's a lot can, like Denny Savard, actually. Yeah, uh, and Wickenheiser's defense. I mean, he was on paper the best player, and it was not particularly that close. The, the Montreal local sentiment for Savard, uh, the stat, I mean, Wickenheiser scored 89 goals for the Regina Pats in 79-80. 170 points and then 40 more points in the playoffs and they won the Memorial Cup that team I mean he was front and center the top junior in in the country so in one sense it was a no-brainer but man just the way his career started and he really had one decent season uh in Montreal uh in his third season but otherwise you know he only hit 50 points once in his entire career so you could certainly say he was a guy that didn't live up to the billing so, Bruce, we're now digging into the NHL's or the Oilers draft uh, prospect pool and ranking the prospects. And you've done a couple posts on that, and I'm about to start. Um, let's just let's start off with since since you're writing about kind of the guys at the very bottom end, the players ranked below 20th so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, what I, what I've done is that I'm going to be writing a post on this. Is looked at the kind of the history uh, in the last. 13 years of these rankings first by low tide his rankings from 2007 to 2011 by alan mitchell and then ours from 2012 to 2019 when we had uh, numeric rankings when we when we did our own cult of hockey prospect rankings and what i found is when you look at players ranked below 20th obviously very few of them make it into the nhl but almost all of them who do the lower ranked players are defensemen who mm-hmm. kind of, even when they're in the Oilers system, don't look particularly good. But a lot of those guys have become solid NHL players. So that it starts with Brad Hunt, who we had ranked 27th in 2013, and he's become uh, an NHLer. Then there's John Marino. Um, <sighs> in consecutive years, we had him ranked 25, 24, 17, 22, and 27. Now, we had him, I think by the time we had him ranked 27, we felt he probably wasn't going to be with the Oilers maybe by yep, then. 100%. So, so, so our, what we're thinking is, who's going to help the Oilers? And that's yeah. the ranking. But, but we never had him ranked that high. And the other guys, I'll just quickly uh, just say, the other guys who were ranked in the teens who became good NHLers, Taylor Fadoon, Eric Gustafson, and Jordan Osterley. And the only forward in that bottom group, the only forward that we see ranked in the 20s who's made it in the NHL, Bruce, is Patrick Russell. And he, he's only kind of made it. He may not, that this may be it for him as an NHLer anyway. So it's very unusual for a forward to overcome a low, like consistent low mm-hmm. rankings in the teens in the 20s and become an uh, NHLer. Mm-hmm. But defenseman, seems like it's entirely possible. Yeah, I know. When we first did it in 2011, and we did a little different format, uh, we just had uh, three teams of prospects, 18 players. And I know outside of the top 18 that year, Brandon Davidson, who uh, I liked at the time, but he didn't quite make it into the into the uh, uh, recognized group, and he wound up with a bit of an NHL career. Uh, and the other f- forward that came from below, uh, Mark Arcabello, uh, who was uh, way down on our rankings as a, you know, came up through an AHL contract and upgraded to an NHL. And we didn't really see big future for him, but he wound up playing uh, well over a hundred games in the NHL. So, you know, at least you can call it a career, uh, but not anything that hit it out of the park. 
Yeah, he, he he was an older player when he signed. So we actually he was only considered like a prospect by by our definition, which is mm-hmm. by the Calder Cup rules for one year in 2013, and he we we had him ranked 13th. So and you know there's some there's been there has been have been guys like Chris Vandeveld that we had ranked as low as 25th at one point, and he made it. But we also had him ranked as high as fourth. Right. He kind of batted around in the rankings, mm-hmm. a little bit. So. Anyway, it just seems like this this kind of builds on the work that Jonathan Willis did uh, recently on the draft where he looked at where, you know, what's the best way to spend your top draft picks? And he, right. his conclusion was, you know, bet on a forward in the first round. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to be, they seem to be far more predictable at that age. The guys who are scoring big time, they, they have a chance to score big time in the NHL. So that's a good bet. But you just don't know where the really good defensemen are going to come from. Or you don't know as well where the really good defensemen are going to come from. So be careful about spending that top pick, even in the first round. Because, you know, what we, I had done work saying in the top 10, it looks like, at least in the mm-hmm. top five, you really should take a forward in the top five. But, um, you know, he, he was looking at the whole first round and his conclusion was take that, uh, use that pick on a forward. And it's probably fairly good advice, although we obviously see tons of defensemen taken in the first round who, who play really well. But if, if things are kind of even, it sounds like go with the forward and, and, and use your second, third, fourth, fifth pick on D-men. Um, spend those picks um, that way. So I think this is kind of in line with that research. Follows up on that. Bruce, when you looked at the the guys ranked low this year, if you had to pick one to bet on, uh, anyone come spring obviously to mind for you? It's going to surprise us all. The guys well, out of the top 20. Yeah. Uh, I got 32 guys that I'm looking at, um, uh, more or less equal long shot dark horses that were picked in the draft last year, Mate Blumel and Thomas Mazura. And they're both from the Czech Republic forwards years and years and years away. Thomas Mazura, the Oilers don't have to sign the guy until 2024. So, you know, we're talking distant future. So at this point, it's just sort of a raw talent evaluation. But they both had their moments at development camp last year where I went to all four days. I'm really going to miss that dev camp this year, and that's missing from this year's evaluations. We will not have had that chance to see these guys. Yeah. But um, uh, both those guys and and one other is much who's much, much closer, but I don't think we should forget about this guy, Ryan Kuffner that Holland signed uh, as a college free agent in Detroit last year. And then this year uh, at the trade deadline, when he gave up two second round draft choices for Andreas Athanasiu, uh, Detroit also threw in Ryan Kuffner in that trade. And Kuffner had a disappointing first year in the AHL. Only uh, he was injured and he only scored, I think, five goals. And he was a goal scorer in college. But if you look at his college career, it was like he went from six goals in his freshman year to 19 to 29 to 22. He was the highest scoring uh, goal scoring forward in the history of Princeton University. And then he turned pro and he had one one season that was disappointing. Detroit uh, moved him along sort of a B-level prospect, which is really all he is at this point. But he's got some some nice um, background. He's already 24, so if he's going to show it, he needs to show it fast. So that's the, uh, the down arrow on, on that guy. It's interesting. Uh, Kuffner, one thing I'll say about him is he, he might have had a somewhat tough situation uh, getting power play first line time 
in uh, the Detroit system Grand because Rapids. Grand Rapids, because Grand Rapids was actually loaded with young forwards who, who, who they had to try to promote and play. So mm-hmm. they had Joe Valino, Philip Zadina, Michael right. Rasmussen on that team this year, all yep. first round picks and uh, two of them high first round picks. They also had um, Ev- Evgeny Svechnikov, who's a first round pick coming back from a serious knee injury. So th- those guys would all be kind of, I think, prioritized in terms of the, yep. the, the opportunity. So maybe Kuffner's going to come in here and, and get a little bit better ice time in uh, Bakersfield next year, where it's not quite so clogged up with top forward prospects and he'll show <laughs> what he has. Um, yeah, the two the two Czech guys also stood out for me as possibilities, mm-hmm. mainly because they're so <laughs> they're the other guys tend to be a little older and we know a little bit more about them. You mm-hmm. know, I when I look at this list uh, of players, and I'm not going to give away where anyone's ranked because um, that's part of the fun of, right, uh, of, the, unva- of the unveiling process. But I, I like the Oilers' chances of finding one or two defensemen in that in this group of players between. Uh, ranked 20 to 10th overall yes. who are going to really help out the the one other thing bruce i won't say where evan bouchard finished in our voting this year although it's probably not that hard to guess but uh when you look at guys ranked first overall by the oilers in their farm system almost all of them bruce were only ranked first overall one year in a row mm-hmm, they were gone. because they immediately graduated from the draft into the yeah. NHL. So Pugliarvi, McDavid, Drysaddle, Yakupov, RNH, Taylor Hall, Sam Gagne, all ranked first overall, but only in the year they were were drafted. Well, Evan Bouchard has already been twice the first overall pick on our prospect list. Already twice. And now we have him wherever he finishes up this year, Bruce. Um, Evan Bouchard is... And and um, the other guy who's been was ranked first overall, Kyler Yamamoto, in 2017. He spent three uh, three years in total on the prospect list. Mm-hmm. So there's something different in the last. The only other uh, kind of really top ranked guys who have spent any length of time on the prospect list were Oscar Kleffbaum, Darnell Nurse, yep. and Jordan Everly. And that's kind of an interesting confluence. That all th- not coincidentally, I think all three of those players turned out pretty well. And I think it really speaks to don't rush your first overall pick in the NHL. Don't mm-hmm. do that. It's a bad idea. So we're not doing yeah. it with Bouchard. We didn't do it with Yamamoto. Well, we, we tried to do it with Yamamoto, but but uh, that didn't work out. But uh, he over kind of overcame that. And we are not doing it with Broberg, Philip Broberg either. And I, I think we're on the right path. I mean, if they're first overall pick, then, then the, the, um, uh... Uh, track record is that 18-year-old kids are the very, very best of their draft class are NHL ready. And, you know, the last first overall forward who got sent back to junior for a year was Mike Medano. I mean, we're talking a long, long way in the past. But mostly when you're talking about, you know, uh, outside of, you know, the the, the top three, uh, and certainly outside of the top ten, there should be no reason to rush that guy along both Kyle Yamamoto and Jordan Eberle went number 22 overall and of course the Oilers did try and rush Yamamoto into the into the team and he played nine games his first year before being sent back Uh, so it wasn't really ideal how that worked out but um, uh, in the end he wound up getting parts of two seasons in the AHL and by the time he came up uh, this this past season he was ready 
And that's more what you should expect, a year, a year and a half at the at developmental level, and then let them loose at the NHL as opposed to saying, well, we got just drafted this guy in the middle of the first round. Let's pencil him in the top six. You know, it just doesn't usually work out, and we have lots of painful experience with that. Here's one for you, Bruce. This this was shock. This is shocking to me. Do you know where we had Philip Roberg rated last year? Yeah, I know where you guys had him rated fifth, fifth, uh, uh, number five, and he was tied for fifth with uh, Dmitry Samorkov, and he won the tiebreaker. I personally had him second, but that's just me. I can't remember <laughs> where I had him, but um, we'll find out really quickly. Um, we had, yeah, so Benson, Yamamoto, Caleb Jones, and Kyler Yamamoto were all ahead of Broberg uh, on that list last year. And, well, was, yeah, I mean, those guys made their mark in the NHL this year, a couple of them, and Benson's close. I mean, it's not like there was another good prospects, but it was a, a rare low uh, position for a fresh first-round draft choice for him to be way down at number five. You had Broberg at second. Mm-hmm. I had him at third. Okay. Uh, Kurt had Kurt Levins had him at fifth. Sean Patrick Ryan had him at eighth, and Jim oh. Matheson had him at sixth. Wow. So that's uh, yeah. So you and I thought the most of. Uh, I had Caleb Jones. I was super high on Caleb mm-hmm. Jones heading into this year, and I I do what would I have Caleb Jones right now ahead of Broberg? Um, I have to think question. about that. That's a good yeah. question. I, I really like Caleb Jones still. I think mm-hmm. he, I think he uh, really came on strong. And I haven't seen enough of Broberg, like, honestly, right. to, to, to say. But I would probably have Broberg ahead of Caleb Jones this year if, they, if Jones was still on the list, which he's not. All righty. That, was that our list of topics, Bruce? Did we, did we miss anything? Uh, certainly the lion's share of them. I know I spent my writing week working on these lower end prospects, you know, 13 hockey players that we had ranked between 21 and 33. So that, um, that's, uh, covers the waterfront of what I've been writing about recently and, uh, will be writing about for the next while. Cause of course we've got the top 20 to go now. So. Alrighty. Yeah. We're going to be getting into the top 20. We're going to be doing the big countdown. It's coming mm. up on our, March to the top of the Oilers prospects. So yeah, y'all have that look to look forward to. Well, Bruce, thanks again for talking today. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Indeed. Thank you. And thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.